0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Scott Rosencrans, a member here at Grace. Uh, If you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and starting at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, He first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. I want to talk today about disruption. How many of you remember the first time you saw an iPod? Anyone remember the first time you saw an iPod? Here's a picture of the 2003 version of an iPod. The one with the four buttons. (laughs) Okay? Okay. I remember distinctly in 2003 the moment I saw this iconic little rectangle that fits in your pocket. I was visiting my sister-in-law and brother-in-law down in Escondido uh, where he was attending seminary and it, was, it had just been his birthday and he pulled out this really cool looking box um, that had the apple icon. He said, you have got to see this. This is my birthday present. And I said, uh, oh, okay. So he <laughs> opened it up, pulled this out, and he said, this is an iPod. And I said, oh. He said, this will hold over 1,000 songs. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, all right, well, uh, that, that's cool. I don't know why. How do you get songs? How do you load the songs? Well, you... You take your CDs and you put it in your computer, and then you transfer them and plug this into your computer and get your songs on here. And and I thought, well, that's what I have my disc man for. <laughs> Seems like a lot of extra work. Um, I mean, I can just load up my Counting Crows and Sting albums anytime I want on my car CD player or on my disc man. And he said, well, you can create playlists that mix different songs. And I said, oh yeah, I've made those. They're called mixtapes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, why would I want to spend several hundred dollars to get this device that would essentially function the same as my man that even had no skip technology on it? Uh, no thank you. No thank you. Uh, Apple stock was, I went back and checked, $22 a share back then. Uh, Clearly, um, I had missed something, okay? Uh, I had missed an opportunity. Something big was happening, and I was simply too ignorant to see it. It was a decisive failure of the imagination. My mind was stuck in the model I had grown up with and in, and the little digital novelty that my brother-in-law was an early adopter of was only that, a novelty, Now, the iPod is an iconic example of what Harvard Business uh, School Professor Clayton Christensen would coin as disruptive technology. In the next decade, Apple would not only dominate the portable music player market, it would become a major player in all media markets and would fundamentally shift, for good or for ill, the way we interact with information and the way we interact with one another. Beyond my personal short-sighted ignorance was a power that would topple industries and create others. There were old media powerhouses that have since fallen, others that would have to change course in order to survive. There were winners and there were losers. Fortunes would rise, think Netflix. Fortunes would fall, think blockbuster video. There was a corporate drama taking place in boardrooms across the land. I was completely ignorant of this. There were lawsuits, insider trading. There were uh, copyright infringements, corporate espionage. Of course, I had no clue that all this was happening. I was still in the world of jewel cases and mixtapes. Wise guys like Clayton Christensen saw it coming. He said of disruptive uh, technology, sustaining innovations replace old products with new. They have a zero-sum effect on jobs and capital. Zero sum. That's an interesting phrase. Now, most of you, I assume, grew up with uh, the American game called Monopoly. Anyone spend five hours on a Friday night playing Monopoly? All right. Monopoly is called monopoly because the winner takes all. The goal is to take everything you have. It's a zero-sum game. For me to gain something, you have to lose something unless I get on free parking, okay? How about risk? Any risk players? Ooh, you just self-identified yourself as a certain kind of person, okay? Risk is kind of like Monopoly, but we're just transparent and saying this is all about warfare and there's no diplomacy at all. I roll the dice and take what you have or vice versa. Now, if you're really geeky like I was in college, some of you may have played Axis and Allies. Anyone? Ooh. Think risk that takes up the whole floor of your dorm room and lasts several months. <laughs> Okay, Um, zero-sum game, winner-take-all. For me to gain, you have to lose something. And that's what disruptive forces create. Now, Jesus Christ makes Apple look like an insignificant speck of dust in the universe when you compare the amount of disruption that takes place. In fact, the very fabric of the universe, everything changes because of Jesus Christ, who, like Apple, and I'm not going to extend the metaphor beyond this, is a disruptive force. And so today we're going to look at disruption as it takes place. Um, We're going to look at the context of disruption, the responses to disruption, and the reason for disruption. Now, we're going to uh, look back at a few verses because... Uh, or A few verses in earlier chapters because a lot of the tension and the conflict in this narrative surrounds uh, conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. So I'm going to give you guys a quick um, classwork assignment. So take out your Bibles. Okay? I'm a classroom teacher. Is my, that's my, my day job. So just foundational rules. I'm going to give you guys a task. okay? You're going to do the task. You're going to ask for volunteers. If, if you don't volunteer, I have to call on someone. <laughs> and those of you who are in school, public school, will just know the rules. If you don't want to be called on, avoid eye contact. <laughs> right? You know the rules? Avoid eye contact with the teacher. Some of you built your academic career on that one principle. Okay? So this group... You guys are going to uh, get this uh, verse, or this, these two verses. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And what I want you to do is say, what is the disruption? Tell me what the disruption is. What is being disrupted? That's the only question. What is being disrupted in, in those two verses? Okay, I'm going to split you guys roughly down the middle here. Sorry, sir. Um, On this side, Mark, chapter two, verses five through ten, a little bit longer. But you are the advanced group, so I can, I can already tell, Um, what is being disrupted. Mark chapter two, verses five, through ten. This side, including my own children. Uh, Mark chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen. Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Read that and, and be prepared to tell me what is being disrupted. And then this group, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And what question am I going to ask you to answer? A plus student right there. She was taking <laughs> notes. All right, so take two minutes, and then uh, I want to hear from some of you. Yeah. Uh, are you, uh, you, you're a post-grad student, right? Yeah, what used to be cheating is now called collaboration, so. <laughs> so you're good, you're good. All right, um, all right, you're good. Someone can pull up a Google Doc. I know, it, you know every group though, there's a workhorse and then there's someone who attaches their cart to that workhorse, so I've been around. Alright, yeah, I know which one you were. Okay, let's hear from this group. I'll read the passage. Mark 1, uh, verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Someone in this group, loud and proud, what's being disrupted? The authority structure, great. All right, the teaching authority structure. Anyone else come up with something similar or different? Similar, okay. Right, so let's think. This is the synagogue, it's the school, and you're dealing not with just any textbook, you're dealing with God's word. You're in a collectivistic culture where people respond to the cues of the authority figures and care deeply about who the authority figures are And here comes some backwater yahoo, um, by his own authority starts teaching. And there is a clear distinction because he teaches with authority and he does the healings to prove it. Good. Thank you. Good job, that group. All right. We're over here. Mark two, five through 10. I'll read it. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, rise and walk. Okay. What did you guys come up with? Yes. They couldn't accept Jesus' identity. All right. Because of his identity, he he of course was able to forgive sins. But since they couldn't accept that. Right. Okay. Very clear. How do sins get forgiven? Through the sacrificial system. There are about 500 laws that talk about that in the Old Testament. They call him, that. they say this is blasphemy because who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? Given the amount of knowledge they had, that in their minds, they were right in accusing him of that. So the very way that our sins are forgiven, and again, there's a miracle to back it up. Okay, The very structure of how we are right with God is being challenged in a fundamental way. Anything else from this group? Yeah? Absolutely, yes, and that one's not going away. Good, excellent. Moving on to this group, Mark chapter 2, 16 and 17. I'll read it. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What's being disrupted? Popular dining trends. Popular dining trends, good. All right. All right. Yeah. The way that people judge, they're judging by appearances. Social Social structure, the way we judge, dining habits, which again in most cultures, those are except for ours, those are pretty important. Um, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Not disruption, but there's eliminating the works-based righteousness aspect of following the law to get your righteousness versus incoming sinners. (laughs) Right. Very important. The religious rubric of here's how we divide people, righteous and unrighteous, clean and unclean, holy and unholy, this in a very personal way is being done away with. Because he is dealing with not righteous versus unrighteous, but proud versus humble. The people who need him are the people he is serving. Very important. I'm going to move on to this last uh, group here. I'll get, again, we're at Mark 2, 23 through 28. And I'll read it. On one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look. even of the Sabbath. This is slightly harder. I'm just telling you. It's going to be very impressive if you come up with the right answer. Okay, anyone? No pressure. (laughs) All right. Okay, structures, rules, purpose of the Sabbath, and again, who's over it? Very good. All right. What's the Sabbath? It's rest. It's something God did himself and created. It's good. He gave it to us so that we could worship him and have what we need, which is rest. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of rest. He's redefining some things for people. All right. Lots of disruption going on here. All right. And you could go through the Gospels and find even more. But Jesus The point is, Jesus is a disruptive force. Every time he interacts with these guys, he turns the tables on them, and up is down and backwards is forwards, and and he reveals something about their nature, human nature, his authority, and it's a big change. Uh, The Pharisees and scribes in particular have these traditions that they've tacked on to the law, they've added to it whether it's the tithing of herbs or what you wear in ceremonies, ritual purity observances, frequent fastings, distinctions and the way you do oaths. We see these uh, in lots of places in the Gospels. And what they've done is they've taken the traditions uh, that they've come up with, tacked them onto the law. The law was for man, that we could live right with God and each other in a sinful world. And they had twisted the law in such a way To make the law an oppressive, uh, impossible force uh, by which to control one another. But Jesus, he is the real disruption here. He comes in with absolute authority and he challenges uh, things through unorthodox means. Miracles, social means of interacting with people you shouldn't simply interact with. And he's drawing a lot of attention to himself. He's something new. He's something powerful. He's something people don't understand, but something they simply must confront. Last week when Gerald preached, we saw how the crowds and the demons responded to Jesus, clamoring or cowering, but they all acknowledged his power and unique authority. In this week's passage, we see a contrast. Two groups who must respond to him as well, but in their response to different degrees and for different purposes is one of rejection. So I want to focus, that's the context of disruption. I want to look at these two responses to disruption. Pick up at Mark 3, verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not eat, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Mark is the only gospel to include this little vignette. Uh, Jesus has been teaching and healing in Capernaum. Uh, the home that he's staying at would not be his childhood home. That's 20 miles away. Okay, um, And we have no indication that his family was living there. Instead, it seems like his family has traveled here because they have heard some things, particularly that he's not eating. And their response to that is to try to seize him and to say he's out of his mind. Now, Mark in his Spartan style doesn't give us any more detail than that. Um, but I think it's fair to assume, given what we know of his family later, and Kenny's going to pick up on this next n- next week, um, it's likely that if this were to occur today, this is some sort of an intervention. Okay? Um, You're familiar with the concept. Uh, Maybe some of you have had to have an intervention into someone's life where out of concern for them, you think something has gone askew or wayward, and you have to jump in and take control in order to uh, bring them around. I think it's safe to say that They're concerned at the cost of Jesus' basic needs, his welfare. He can't rest. Crowds are coming around the house that he's staying at. He can't eat. Um, And so it's worth taking the 20-mile journey uh, to come and try to, to intervene in some way. It could be also that they are responding to the potential religious and political turmoil that Jesus seems to be at the center of already. I mean, much of his early life was spent kind of flying under the radar, going to Egypt, you know, staying out of the auspices and view of the authorities, given who he was. Maybe there was something else cultural going on where their vision for what Jesus was to become did not line up with what was happening. Maybe some sort of traditional ascension into authority through political means or through uh, religious means, but certainly not what they were seeing and hearing. We don't know. All Mark gives us is one terse statement. They were saying he's out of his mind. Uh, And this has the connotation of amazement. the, The way this phrase is used. They were amazed. It's as if this isn't the same person that we left. They're encountering a different Jesus than they'd known. And if you think between the time he left his home and where we are in his early part of his ministry, some significant things have happened to him that could change him. I would suggest at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, there is a power that is commensurate with change. When he goes out to the wilderness to be tempted, the Spirit sends him out there. And these experiences and this power of the Holy Spirit is enabling him to minister in a way where early in chapter 1, when he says the whole purpose of his ministry, he says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, uh, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's that is the impulse uh, of his teaching and his earthly ministry. That is the one sentence summary of this disruption. Of course, we don't know how this family thing resolved quite yet. But there's another group. And if you pick up at verse 22, I want to think about this group. I'm just going to simply call them the experts. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, we will continue his uh, incisive uh, dismantling of their fallacious argument in a moment. But I want to just camp on who these people are. The second group that responds to Jesus' disruptive entrance into public, uh, the public stage are scribes from Jerusalem. We don't have their names, but we can s- safely assume that because they're from Jerusalem, which is the center of of religious authority and power and government, that they are tied to groups like the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Their trip would have been an 85-mile journey, and they would probably have one of a couple of missions. At the very least, this is a fact-finding mission to see if Capernaum has become a seduced city. That is, to determine whether there's a false teacher and that the people in these crowds are going apostate. That they are leaving, in some fundamental uh, way, uh, the religion. Or, it's maybe a little bit more likely that these are actually the hired guns. The expert witnesses who are going to... uh, basically come and take this guy out, take him down. Uh, these were the, likely the best educated religious scholars of the time. They'd undoubtedly heard a uh, word of this new teacher, his works, his message. They'd be aware of the existing tensions going on there. And they would probably have a remarkable amount of authority if they came in to clean things up. Now, like Jesus' family, they have misguided interests. Their interests and their purposes are at odds with Jesus' interests and purpose, except they're much more malignant. We could say that his family is kind of ignorant and benign. They mean well, but they're off target. These guys, not so. In short, these are the guys who... Uh, when confronted with the truth of what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is claiming, ironically, these are the guys who would best be able to affirm who Jesus really is. Unless, of course, their hearts are hardened and their eyes are, are blinded. And, of course, that's what happens. And so they see Jesus performing a miracle. In Luke, we get a, a, a vision of this, the exact miracle, and it is uh, healing a mute man and casting a demon out of this mute man. They came uh, here to Jesus to play cat and mouse. And the irony is they didn't realize that they were the mouse. Okay? Um, Not only were they the mouse, but Jesus is the cat, and Jesus is Aslan, and they are like Chuck E. Cheese or something. They are like some lame mouse wearing a hat. And not even the scary animatronic version of Chuck E. Cheese, just like the cartoon. Um, and, and so they come up to him thinking they're going to, you know, be able to have some authoritative um, uh, claim. And Jesus says, picking up to, in, in verse 23, he called to them and in, in saying in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan had risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus exposes a simple uh, absurdity to their claim by applying our old friend logic. Anyone take a logic class ever? Okay, good, good. We have a... Uh, philosophy PhD candidate back there. I'm pretty convinced that they should bring that back to high school. Um, But uh, in logic, one good way is kind of trying to reduce something to a syllogism where you have a major claim, a minor claim, and a conclusion. And that's basically what Jesus is doing here. And just to make sure they get the point, he basically gives three forms of the same syllogism. Major claim, kingdoms want to stand. Minor claim, kingdoms that intentionally destroy themselves fall. Therefore, kingdoms won't intentionally destroy themselves. Houses, read families, they want to stand. Houses that are divided against themselves won't stand. Therefore, houses won't do things that divide themselves. And in case you didn't get the metaphorical language, Satan wants to destroy, devour, and divide people from God. Demonic spirits... Whom Satan commands will help him achieve this end. Therefore, Satan will, command, will not command spirits to do things that are against that goal. Destroying, devouring, and dividing. I mean, we could contextualize this for our world today. There are horrible people doing horrible things out there. There's this uh, jihadist Islamic group called Boko Haram. And they go in and they uh, kidnap young girls who are trying to get educated. It would be absurd to say, uh, or see a headline, Boko Haram starts an after-school reading program for girls. It just simply would not happen, okay? Kim Jong-un, he runs the largest concentration camp in the world. It's called North Korea. It's, it's a horrible place. If you go against Kim Jong-un's leadership, You get imprisoned, your parents get imprisoned, and your children get imprisoned. You would never see Kim Jong-un say, by mandate, I demand you all read and memorize the Declaration of Independence. It simply wouldn't happen. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's taking uh, the claim that this good he's doing, delivering people from demonic forces... And, and the claim that that is of Satan himself, he is exposing how completely absurd and horrible that is. I'm a high school teacher again, and in my custom language of my students, they, they might say, Jesus owned them. Okay, <laughs> He completely destroys their argument. There wasn't even an argument. So why would these guys who are the brightest legal minds of the time come up with this argument in the first place. It kind of boggles the mind. Uh, You know, I think it has to do with what Jesus knows, which is the internal logic of their own hearts. You know, their major, major premise running their mission is, as a first priority, we must maintain religious power and control, for we are right. A minor premise. Jesus is a threat to the maintenance of our religious power and control, and the conclusion that they're operating under is say and believe anything we can, we can believe or say to discredit Jesus' work and power. And he's going to have none of that. And they've already tried to discredit him in other ways. And if you think of the options, they don't have any left. Number one option debate him in the synagogue. Good luck. Okay, Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue since he was like twelve. You are not going to win, beat him there in a debate. No one has. Every time he flips the tables on you, exposes your heart, um, and more people come running to him. Option two: sway public uh, opinion of Jesus. Nope, that's not going to happen either. This guy is drawing. Giant crowds, and he's healing people of their years long infirmities and casting demons out and delivering them from the world of darkness into the world of light. You cannot compete with that. Okay? Public opinion, they're not going to hear what you have to say. Option three, ignore the problem. That basically never works. Okay? And it's not going to work now. He's gaining momentum. He's organizing. There's a grassroots movement. He's training and delegating guys to do the same thing he's doing, OK? He's, uh, this, this is moving. It's growing, maybe by orders of magnitude. And option four, put out a hit. It's too early for that. It's too ugly. Not enough political support. The pieces are not in place. Although we do know that they've already started to conspire with the Herodians. That, that is on the table, but this is not the time. Option five, ad hominem attack. Latin for just call him names. And in this case, that's what they do. They basically say, this guy is possessed by Satan. All right? Um, it's, it's not their, their minds aren't operating well here, right? The heart has reason that reason does not know, says Blaise Pascal. But Jeremiah put it better. Uh, chapter 17 of Jeremiah, verses 9 and following, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? said, no Disney movie ever. (laughs) Uh, But verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Jesus knows what's really going on here. It is their twisted hearts, the inner logic of their hearts that are loving this particular claim and in verse 27 Jesus uh, responds with another parable and remember this is uh, parables mean actually literally to throw alongside Jesus tells a lot of stories that he doesn't expect a lot of people to get but the people who are truly listening will hear and Jesus says no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house so Jesus takes their false logic and exposes it as a false, and he inserts his own uh, logical syllogism. Major premise. To plunder a strong man's house or goods, someone must bind that strong man. Minor premise. To bind a strong man, someone must be stronger than the strong man. And therefore... Only a man stronger than the strong man can plunder his house. A careful listener, having seen Jesus cast out demons, could only arrive at one conclusion. Jesus is the plunderer. He has a unique power and authority over Satan. And that's pretty important. And we're going to come back to that. In verse 28, Jesus moves from parable mode back to authority mode. He says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has, uh, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, when we first read this, uh, and when I first read this passage, I thought this is what was the, the thrust of the sermon was going to be. But... I I want to think of it more like a theological sidebar. I want to address it because it's important. But I also don't want to detract from the gospel impulse of this uh, uh, passage. So let's take a few minutes to talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and uh, try to come away with um, some productive or practical ways to think about it. First of all, let's acknowledge that blasphemy is big news. Okay? Um, there are religious people out there who still uh, believe that their the, the person they claim their prophet is, uh, if there's an image or if that, that name is being profaned, that, uh, that that's free license and, and, and just license for murder. On the other hand, you have lots of people in the world who... Uh, are very loosey-goosey and freewheeling with the name of God and and in a profane way. Sometimes every other word is profane and completely dismissive of uh, the, the importance and the power and the significance of the name of God. Given that tension and that reality, how should we think about it? Uh, What is it and why should we care? Well, blasphemy, in short, it's a sin of the mouth. It basically means to attribute um, bad, harsh, untruthful, hurtful, uh, unholy uh, connotations to something that is considered holy or sacred. It is a slander against what is true and right. Right. And this is not new. Two of the Ten Commandments deal with sins of the mouth. The Ninth Commandment, Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But importantly, the Third Commandment, Exodus 27, says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And of the Ten Commandments, this is the only one that has tacked on to the end a harsh warning. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. It's significant. Jews took this so seriously that they did not use God's revealed name. Which oftentimes we call Yahweh, but we're not, we're not certain even what the exact pronunciation is. Instead, they used what in our Bible translates to the Lord in all caps. Whenever you see that, if you ever wonder why there's all caps, that's why. It's the uh, uh, transliterated way of saying Adonai, which means the Lord. In Leviticus, cursing or blaspheming God's name was punishable by death. It was very important that you avoid at all costs blaspheming God's name. Because it is holy, it is set apart, and to associate it with something evil, like doing evil in God's name, or to associate it with something unholy, being profane with it, was serious, because this is God's name, God's revealed name. Jesus says to these uh, guys in response to uh, what they said, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they, they utter. They would not have a category for that statement. Jesus, whenever he says, truly, I say to you, He's the only person up to that point in history who ever said that. In the rabbinic system, you always pointed to another rabbi who taught, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. I say to you. Whenever you see that in the book of Mark, that is a unique authority that Jesus, this is a new teaching. And as soon as he says that, we get a paradox. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is uh, uh, guilty of eternal sins. Well, para- paradoxes have this seeming contradiction, right? There has to be a truth in the tension there. And I wanted to just briefly talk about three ways people interpret this and say what this means, okay? Always keep the context of Scripture in mind. What we know, when in each case that Jesus um, uh, says this, we see that, He's talking to people who witnessed him perform a miracle. He's talking to people who have accused him of being possessed. And he's talking to people who have said that his power is the power of Satan. All right, so in, in a spirit of good Bible study, we have to consider those three variables are what we know of this sin. Having said that, historically, there are three views. Um, I'll, first, I'll call the first Augustine's view. And it's the notion that a person who is perpetually rejecting the Lord, not coming to Christ, has a hardened heart despite having seen the Lord at work in some way. Okay, that's the first view. The second view um, is John Calvin's uh, view, which is different. Uh, John Calvin uh, says that blasphemers against the Spirit slander his gifts and power, contrary to the conviction of their own mind. um, For in this manner, they purposely and maliciously turn light into darkness to make war against God. So Calvin's view was a little bit more, there was an intention to make war against God, turning light into darkness. Now I want to pause there and say, of those two views, I think this much is helpful. And we can see it in this passage. And uh, forgive me for you know, using this term to describe it, but it seems like spiritual dyslexia on the part of the scribes. They see the opposite image of what something is. They are calling light darkness and darkness light, and their hearts are set in that mode. And I think that's helpful because what distinguishes blaspheming the Holy Spirit against blaspheming the Son or the Father is that the Spirit has a unique power in the life of Uh, coming to salvation that is the spirit is the power by which we believe in jesus the spirit is the power by which our eyes are open to what the scriptures are saying the spirit is the power by which we can truly repent and to say that power is from satan excludes being able to have that power to be saved Now, there's one more view, um, uh, and this is uh, currently John MacArthur, uh, you know, a theologian, kind of local here. He thinks that this particular sin was something that could really only be committed in the life of Jesus because of the context of seeing Jesus and his fully uh, revealed uh, human form there, what he's doing, what he's saying, and then also having this uh, response to him. Now, I am not going to tell you which one of those is right, because I am really out of my league with those three names, Augustine, Calvin, and John MacArthur. I'm just, I'm, I'm not in that league. So, But I will tell you this, I, I tend to lean towards the third position, given that we don't see this issue tackled in the epistles. There's blasphemy, but not this particular brand. It doesn't seem that something the apostles were concerned with in any way that we can discern. But say I'm wrong about that, here's what I think we can say with a lot of clarity. If you are a believer, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you are seeking and interested and knowing about Christianity, your heart isn't in a place where you blaspheme blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And let's take a worst-case scenario. Let's say you made it your life goal for a period in your life to discredit Jesus. Let's say to persecute his people and even kill them. Well, that resume landed someone in the position of an apostle, Okay? Paul of Tarsus. Alright? So, I, I I think the takeaway should be we have assurance we haven't committed it, and also we should be very uh, careful about ever assuming anyone else is too far gone. A- assuming people have crossed that line. I, I don't think that's helpful. That doesn't mean we don't call evil evil when we see it, but uh, I think the scripture does not give us the marching orders to discern this one. Okay? All right. Back away from theological sidebar. Okay? I want to talk about what I think is really important, the most important thing about this passage. And that's the reason for the disruption. And we get it in two ways in this passage. First, um, when Jesus says all sins can be forgiven the children of man. That tells us a few things that are really important. First of all, um, that sins are things to be forgiven. That sins put us in debt. It also tells us that sins must be forgiven, not that they put us in debt, but we can't pay our way out of our sins. Okay? We can't take out a loan on paying off our sins. It's not going to happen. And this is available for the children of man. This is available to anyone and everyone who hears the gospel. Okay. Secondly, oh, well, go back to Jesus' call, repent and believe. This is the purpose of his ministry, for he has inaugurated this new kingdom. Secondly, Jesus' parable about the strong man who must be bound. The one about plundering his goods. I think there's some real gospel significance there that we can benefit from. First, Jesus has bound Satan. He has authority over Satan. You know, as Christians, we have three spiritual enemies. We have Satan, who deceives and tempts and lies... We have our flesh, which is corrupted and will pass away. And we have the world, which is also breaking apart. I mean, think how hard it was for some of you just to even get to church. The world is always pulling things apart. We don't have that shalom and peace in the world that we want. It always takes so much effort to try to make things go right. The very world is in a place it's under the, the curse if you are not part of God's new kingdom that he is building. And Jesus has bound Satan. Okay? And he's plundering his goods. That's really good news. He's not bound Satan for that sake. He is taking Satan's treasure and making it his treasure. And if you call on the name of Jesus and are saved, if you repent of your sins and believe in the gospel, Jesus uh, has taken you away. That doesn't mean you won't experience um, evil in the world, but it means that you are not captive to it. At a fundamental level, you are free from it. And it also means the converse is true. And I think it's really important to consider uh, this statement of Jesus. The same event, but in a different gospel. Um, Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives the same parable about the strong man, but he adds this. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In short, Jesus is saying, I've come to raid this horde and take back what is mine. To take back that which Satan had, I've bound him, it's mine. But if you are not with me, you are against me. You see, that's a disruptive statement if there ever is one. Because you could not say that Jesus is a good moral teacher and then reconcile it with that statement. You could not say that Jesus is one of many roads to God and then reconcile it with that statement. It's disruptive, and Jesus gave his life to prove that he meant it. But another thing should be clear. What separates us who have been plundered from those who haven't? I'll tell you this, and I... I can assure you there are others in this room who will tell you the same thing. It's not that we are righteous and they who are left are unrighteous. It's not that we are any better. We are just as bound and, 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 and just as desperate and depraved. The difference in God's new economy and the disruption is not the righteous and the unrighteous Indeed, we, we do need to be righteous, but not by our own strength. It is Christ who makes us righteous. He is our righteousness. No, no, the difference is the humble and the proud. That's God's new economy. Those who recognize that they're captive and need to be saved, that they don't have the strength And God draws them to himself and have the humility to say, I can't save myself. Please save me. Forgive me of my sins. The difference between those who are captive and those who are free is the difference of God's grace in our lives. And that is the disruptive force of history. And that is a zero-sum game. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, your mercy towards us. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that uh, you would hide it in our hearts, Lord, and that uh, by your spirit, we would be more like you, be transformed, be more humble, and be seeking your face. In Jesus' name, amen.